and we can make higher education more affordable by expanding Pell Grants so that middle-class families aren't feeling the squeeze or telling their, their child that they can't achieve their dream because it's not affordable or attainable. We can do these things. Haley Stevens from Michigan. My sleeves are rolled up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to tell you, as someone who is represented in Congress by a deeply unserious person, I sleep better knowing that you're there in the details that you could go deep on any topic I ask you about. And I just, I so appreciate everything that you do for all of us. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsu Politics. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us for a new episode. This week at Pantsuit Politics has been just so typically May and more. If you listen to Tuesday's episode, you know that Sarah and her whole family have COVID. I saw her this morning, and y'all, she is sick, sick. I hope that she's getting good rest and that she'll be back to herself by next week. I know you're waiting to hear her talk about Madison Cawthorn losing his primary. I promise that she will and that it will be worth the wait. Today, I am very lucky to have with me two women who I know to be brilliant, kind, courageous, and compassionate. Our very own Elise Knapp generously took a break from her parental leave to talk with me about the infant formula shortage. If you're new to Pantsuit Politics, Elise is our managing director. She's off right now as she and Kevin welcome one-month-old Oliver to the world, and I am so grateful that she brought her perspective to this conversation. And then we are very honored to have Representative Haley Stevens of Michigan with us as part of our midterm election series, exploring the distinctive cultures that create these United States. We always end our show talking about what's on our minds outside of politics. And I have been waiting for the moment to share with you how much I love seeing Garth Brooks live last Saturday in Cincinnati. So I will do that at the end of the episode. Before Elise joins me, I want to thank everyone who has read or listened to our new book, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything, and particularly those who've taken time to write to us about how helpful it's been to them. I spoke to a group of women working in STEM fields last night, and I was telling them that success for me meant that at the end of our time together, they left with something, a word, a phrase, a question, something that they could put into practice this week. And that's how I feel about our book. Sarah and I really tried to fill it with practical takeaways and ideas and words that we use all the time. And it has been really wonderful to hear those takeaways are actually being taken away. So thank you. Next up, Elise will join me to discuss the infant formula shortage. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. 
Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Elise, I'm so happy that you're here. It's just good to see your face. It's good to hear your voice. I'm so happy. It's it's so nice to feel like I'm doing my work and being an adult human for a hot minute. <laughs> well, tell everybody how you are. How's Oliver? How how has the first month with an infant been? Um, this is very difficult. <laughs> uh, parenting is hard and exhausting. Um, we've made some some real improvements in the last few days since he turned one month. He kind of hit that developmental upgrade. Um, my husband called him Oliver 2.0 and I said, mm, no, he's just like a 1.2 version. Maybe we haven't <laughs> hit a full like next version, but we adjusted some feeding things, which we're going to talk about and some sleeping things. And he's been much better. But the first month was a lot of having a different person scream in my face for most of the day. So I'm happy that we seem to be moving out of that phase, but no, we're, I mean, really we're doing, we're doing well. We're, we're so grateful that he's healthy and we're healthy and everyone's good. And He's just being a baby. And, you know, babies are loud. <laughs> I think starting with this is hard with someone who's in it, I think that's a good way to kick off a discussion about a formula shortage. Our listener, Elizabeth, puts this really well. I am a new mom with a lot of new mom friends, and we have been watching the baby formula shortage closely for months. Conversations over playdates, chatting at the library, Frantic texts when one of the moms in our group had run out of her specialty formula and had trouble finding more. As a news person, I have consistently found myself wondering why this shortage was not making the news and wishing that the experience of moms trying to keep their babies fed would break through. Earlier this week, when the shortage became more severe and the media coverage started to pick up, I was both heartbroken and relieved. Reading the stories from moms across the country that are struggling every day to feed their babies was so distressing. My little preemie had to use supplemental formula in the hospital and for the first few weeks of her life because she was so tiny. 
I continue to think about what it could have been like if she was born today rather than a year ago, and I couldn't find the formula that she needed to live. But my hope was in the belief that with more eyes and ears on the problem of the shortage, the more solutions that could be brought to the table to remedy the supply problem. Surely, when faced with these facts, people in power will all pitch in and do whatever possible to help. Then I saw what my governor, Greg Abbott, had to say about the shortage. I was shocked to my core that he could take an issue like this and use it to sow hate and racial division in our community. I also heard from mamas in my circle that with the news coverage of the shortage, some of them have been harassed in person and online for their feeding choices for their infants. Things like being asked by strangers in the grocery store if the baby is breastfed or needs the formula Joe Biden is hiding. All of these events have led me to a new understanding of something I know you ladies have talked about for a long time. The nationalization, polarization, attention-based system we have in our country does not solve problems as much as it complicates them. I thought the baby formula shortage was a no-brainer, a political issue, albeit a complicated one. But boy, was I wrong. And while it seems like the Biden administration has put into place this week some things that will help, and I'm grateful to have a deeper understanding of the root issues at play here, thanks to some great reporting, I'm left wondering if the baby formula shortage is better off after being in the news this week. I'm wondering if mamas and babies are better off. If we could all just, as we talk about this, remember, this is so hard in such an intense way at a time when you are physically and emotionally wrung out. To add to that the possibility that you might not be able to get everything that you need for this little person that you're just trying to keep alive in the wide world that they're meeting for the first time, I think that is a really important way to begin. Yeah, I, you know, before we had him, and still now, so many people have wonderfully said, as long as you're all alive, it's a success. Like everyone's mm-hmm. surviving, that's what winning looks like. Like that is what success looks like. And I have very much come to embrace that of like, even on the hardest days, like we're all alive, we're all healthy. Like that's as much as we can ask for. And to have a circumstance where any of that is in question, I just, I understand it so much deeply, which I will say from the start of this conversation, we are using formula. I am not producing enough, which is fine and normal. And um, so we're supplementing with formula and we have since we came home from the hospital. And we have been incredibly lucky to be able to find the kind that we need for him. And also it's a more expensive, what we're getting and able to find is a more expensive kind and we can handle that financially. But it's, been a really, um, you know, I did a more to say a few weeks ago about that I had recorded before I had Oliver about privilege and pregnancy and how this whole process made me see my privilege so much more strongly. And that just continues in this moment where I feel so intensely how lucky we are to be able to have the situation where we do, where we haven't worried too much about is, are we going to be able to find formula? We've been fine. Um, but that's not the case for so, so, so many people. And I, just being in this moment and seeing other people experiencing that is like a level of empathy that's hard to describe when you're not in it in the moment too, or have well, been at some point in the past with your own baby. 
And I want to say as we enter this conversation uh, that I also used formula with Ellen. With Jane, I did not. So so Jane is 11 now, and I was really taken in by the idea of breast is best. And I think it was a different time. I honestly think that was being discussed differently 11 years ago than it is today. And I invited suffering into our lives by the way that I pumped and tried to make that work. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was not good for us. I think probably the benefits that she got from having only breast milk were outweighed by the anxiety and exhaustion that it created. So with Ellen and Sarah, I have to thank for this. She was just like, just pump what you pump and then add formula to it. What are you doing? And she was right. And so that's what I did. And I also cannot really imagine what it would be like to just have in question that what I needed would be available. And I think that the, as our listener, Elizabeth, beautifully articulated, it is just surprising that any of that has political dimensions, um, that we cannot have the fundamental empathy for one another, that there are a huge variety of reasons that are straight up nobody's business why people need formula yeah. and why people of all walks of life need formula. Yeah, I, you know, I actually texted Sarah like, I don't know three days into his life. And I was like, thank you for planting the seed in my mind so many years ago when I didn't know I would need it, that it was totally fine to supplement. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will say I have friends who have had a whole variety of different experiences that have made them need to use formula. And so I feel very lucky that while I certainly have gotten some of the breast is best messaging, I also have had seen enough friends and family experience things. It's like, no, no, fed is best. That's right. <laughs> Whatever it takes to feed your baby is best. You know, I was thinking about this this morning and last night, knowing that we we're going to have this conversation and and specifically about the politicization. I was trying to think why. You know, I had this I had this thought that this should have been a moment, like you said, for us to rally around and we can do this. And this is a a, a thing that brings us together. And it felt to me like the beginning of the pandemic in some ways of this moment of hope of, oh, like this isn't going to get politicized. Like we're we're all on the same page about this. We don't want people to die. We don't want babies to to not be fed or not, you know, to die. And yet so quickly it becomes political and it's just baffling. And I was thinking about why that is like, okay, so why is this an issue that becomes political? And at least the conclusion that I came to, I'm sure there are many reasons, but as I was thinking about this, I thought you know, so much of effective politics, not ethical politics, but effective politics is driven by fear. And what is a more fearful situation than than not knowing if you're going to be able to feed your baby? And so what a moment to capitalize on fear. And that is like the most cynical, <laughs> horrible thought. But also that's where I landed. It was like, why are we making this political? Oh, it's because it's easy because people are afraid. And that's when it becomes really easy to make things political. Again, not ethical just effective. I think we're working out so many things through this vehicle, which we have been doing since the beginning of the pandemic and probably before, but in such an obvious way now. So let's back up for a second. If you are not in the world of having little littles or friends with little littles, the situation is this. Formula has been disrupted in its supply throughout the pandemic because of logistics issues, because of the kinds of supply chain problems, transportation, fuel, backups in ports that we've seen, you know, plants going on and offline that we've seen in a number of industries. The problem has been materially exacerbated because in early 2022, 
the FDA responded to complaints about a particular formula manufacturing plant, Abbott Nutrition in Michigan, and did an investigation and found contamination in the plant, particular sites of bacteria. And there were reports of sickness. There were reports of two infant deaths. Now, there has not been a court that has adjudicated causation here, and Abbott Nutrition would tell us that there is no evidence that their formula created illness or death for these infants. But we do know that there was enough happening here that the Department of Justice went to court seeking an injunction to close this plant. And the the plant went offline and powdered formula from the plant was recalled. And it is important to know that formula comes in a powdered form, in a liquid form, and in a ready-to-use form. We are just talking about the powdered formula. But this plant supplies an awful lot of formula throughout the United States, and it is one of the only ways that certain infants are able to get formula because they make a lot of specialty formula for infants who stomachs are not able to digest the proteins that are in just regular formula. So if you have an infant uh, with particular allergies or with digestive difficulties, this has really been hard on you. At least when I said we're working out a lot of our feelings about many things here, one of those things is poverty, clearly. Yes, yes. Because the hit this supply has taken through this one plant results from the fact that about half of all infant formula in the United States is purchased through WIC, a program that assists families living at and around the poverty line. And that program has been enormously successful in getting babies fed. It has also resulted in states doing exclusive deals with formula manufacturers. So a state will decide, we are going to do a deal with this particular manufacturer. This is what WIC buys in our state. And that helps drive the prices down. So as taxpayers, we might say, good job. That's the way to do this. Uh, And it works really well until it doesn't anymore, like most things, because the effect of states negotiating those exclusive contracts is that we don't have many formula suppliers. The market is really consolidated in a few big players. And that means you take one factory offline and you really have a crisis on your hands. And so we are working out how we feel about poverty, how we feel about motherhood, how we feel about breastfeeding. Um... Somehow we have injected in it because we do with everything an element of race. And I think we are we we cannot ignore that this is happening against the backdrop of the leaked Supreme Court decision uh, that Mm -hmm. has made it seem inevitable that Roe versus Wade will be overturned. So here we are in America where uh, one political party in particular is telling us, well, you must have babies, all of them, under all circumstances. Uh, and you must breastfeed them. <laughs> and if you aren't, like, you're just, I don't know, soulless. I think it's just hitting hard. Yeah. There's an episode of The West Wing. Sarah's going to hate that I just referenced The West Wing, but I know you're on my side in this yeah. particular love for The West Wing. Listen, it's um, a good show. It's a great <laughs> show. Does it hold up? Not entirely, but it's so good, and I just keep rewatching it, so... But I just watched the episode, The Women of Kumar, not that long ago. And one of the subplots um, in that episode is there's a whole thing with a, a potential outbreak of mad cow disease in the United States. And they're, they're trying to decide, like, do we tell the public? And Martin Sheen's character, President Bartlett, 
makes this comment that it's it's when the smallest things, the things that we rely on the most, the things that we just expect to work go offline that create the most disruption. And he's talking about the beef industry. But I've, I think about that in many circumstances, and this has definitely been one of them, that just, you know, we have this very tight supply process around this thing that is so essential to so many people. And just a little disruption or several little disruptions, and it can be catastrophic for for so many families. And I think you're right. I think that we're trying to bring so many things to this conversation when it should just be how do we get these babies fed? But yes, we I mean, and in what world are are things like poverty and race and motherhood and abortion, all these oh, you know, all of these things are already things that create heated conversations. And so to pile all that on top I mean, again, it's easy to see how this becomes a complicated discussion for people. And yet at the same time, when we just go back to the core of it, I'm like, why Why do we have to layer all these things on? Why is this so difficult? But yet here we are. I, I will say it's something that my husband and I have been talking about too, you know, when we've been able to find the formula that we have been using, because we've been needing to get like sensitive stuff for Oliver, because he's just still so teeny tiny. His little digestive system is still working some things out. The regular formula is not so great for him. Certainly not the level of people who have allergies or whatever. It's just we just need a sensitive version. But my husband has been kind of concerned, like, why have we been able to find this particular stuff that we're using? Like, is it bad? Like, should we not be using this if we've been able to find it? Like, why is it still on the shelves? And one is that we're not using powdered formula, which is where the main source of disruption is, which of course trickles down to, you know, then people buy the other kinds and whatever. But I, I told him, I was like, because another issue here is that we are buying the ready to make, the ready made formula that while well, we just pour it into a bottle and it's ready to go. And that's the most expensive kind. And for us, that's fine. We can afford to buy the most expensive kind if we need to, to keep our baby fed. But where we live, that's not true of everyone. I mean, it's not true of everyone in any place. But even the other day, I, I found some at the store and he's like, well, did you buy it? And I was like, no, we have enough. And the American Academy of Pediatrics says, don't buy more than you need for a 10-day, two-week period. And I was like, if I buy the formulas on the shelf, someone else in our community who does not have the resources that we do is not going to be able to buy that pack of formula. And so I left it there. And he's like, oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> but it's, it, it, we're just, again, it's just so many layers and trying to sort through that all in this moment where, as you said earlier in this conversation, you're just swimming in like the emotional and physical exhaustion and trying to make rational choices in the midst of that. It's hard. It's really hard. It is really hard. And I appreciate you bringing up that you have had access to some formula because to Elizabeth's point at the beginning about are we better off with people talking about this or not? Mm -hmm. Certainly information should be powerful. But the trouble is, on an issue like this, a lot of it gets really mundane. Why is there bacteria in some of that formula? It looks like because of water in the plant that hasn't been controlled. The FDA noticed some condensation around drying machines. Like those are banal details, you know, that yeah, nobody tiny. really wants to get into, but, but they make a huge difference. And when we talk about a shortage of some kind of product, that is not going to affect the entire country evenly. Yep. That's not going to affect every store evenly. So it doesn't mean that what's available to you is bad. It just means your area is doing okay right now for tons of reasons, population, transportation, and logistics, price points, 
who has the WIC contract there. So Mm -hmm. to what extent does Abbott Nutrition impact North Carolina? Perhaps less than another state. There are lots of reasons why formula might be available to you or why it might be uh, drastically in lower supply elsewhere. And the administration has said that it looks like nationwide the supply is at about 80%. And knowing that is important to prevent people from panic buying. As you said, if you are panic buying, you are adding to the problem. Now, that's a hard thing to say to people who have teeny tiny infants, because of course, panic buying is what you're going to do in a situation like this. Uh, And so the information flow has to be careful and deliberate. And that is why, I don't know, state governors wading into this with political talking points is super unhelpful. We need to get people really good information about what's happening and why it's happening and what we need them to do and what our promises to them are as we ask them to do those things. So with that, we just want to make sure that we use our opportunity here to say what we have learned through a lot of research about this topic emphasizes how important it is not to water your formula down to try to make it last longer that can really make infants sick. So please don't do that. Don't use cow's milk. (laughs) Don't use cow's milk unless you are in a really dire situation, have a child who is almost one years old, have not seen any allergy kinds of issues, and and do it for as short a period of time as possible. Whole milk if, if you go that route. But the situation is cow's milk has proteins in it that are really hard for infants to break down. And that's why it is used as a basis for formula. But a lot of chemistry has to be done to make it work for those infants. Don't make homemade formula. Infants have died from that. Um, And I know there are a lot of messages out there saying things have always been fine before we had this newfangled formula. And that is just not correct. Very much not correct. (laughs) We want you to be careful. You know, if you you can't get anything but preemie formula, you could do that for a couple of days, depending on the age of the infant. Toddler formula might be okay for a younger child for a couple of days. When in doubt, talk to your pediatrician. Talk to your pediatrician about where you might be able to find some formula. Please don't buy it from auction sites. Just, this is hard Uh, It is also something that we can get through. We are one of the world's wealthiest nations. We can figure this out. In the long term, we need to think about industry consolidation and diversifying the sources for our formula. We need to think about tariffs. We have a lot of economic protectionism going on in the way this industry is regulated and configured. There are a number of places where government has been both a good solution and created problems, which is always the case for anything. But we need to think through those issues. But for the moment, I just think, you know, how can we support each other through this is the question. And if you don't have a little baby that you're trying to feed and you see formula on the shelf in your area and you have friends who maybe have a little baby they're trying to feed, call them or text them and ask if they need it. (laughs) And this should go without saying, of course, but you know, offer absolutely no judgment about how anyone is feeding their baby, whether by necessity or by choice. Because as long as that baby is getting fed, that is the important thing. Elise, thank you so much. Thank you. It's so nice to see you and talk to you and be here for a minute. And I'm so eager to be back with you all once I'm getting more sleep. We are eager to have you back and also no pressure whatsoever. We're so glad that you <laughs> that you have this time and want to give you all the space and put no pressure on you whatsoever to do things like this, but are so delighted when you will. No, I'm so happy that it worked. Thank you so much to Elise. Next, it's my 
distinct privilege to introduce you to Representative Haley Stevens, the Congresswoman representing Michigan's 11th District. She sits on the House Committee on Education and Labor and the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology, where she chairs the Research and Technology Subcommittee. And you will hear her passion for innovation and manufacturing and for serving the people of her district and all of us well in this conversation. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy.
Well, it is an honor and a delight to have Representative Haley Stevens with us. Representative Stevens, you know that we have been following Colin Woodard's model to discuss the midterm elections because we think that he makes a good point that we are not urban-rural divided as much as we like to talk about, or even divided as Democrats and Republicans, um, as much as the cultures of the areas that we have lived in play a role in how we think about the national landscape and who should be representing us. So you are a representative from Michigan, which is in Yankeedom. And that surprised me. Uh, But as I read more about it, the description of people who sacrifice the individual for the group, who believe that government has a very strong role to play in ensuring that we're all living our best lives, kind of a focus on excellence, that all made sense to me. I wonder how that lands with you as you think about your district and your constituents. Well, even more broadly, I am such a fan of Colin Woodward's work, his book, the writings that he has produced. And these are points that I have stumbled across in my career as somebody who was working in democratic politics in the 2008 presidential elections, first for Hillary Clinton and then for Barack Obama, um, trying to win back the presidency and reckoning with topics like healthcare, like poverty, and running in to what I believed was a regional clash. How do you talk about poverty when it looks different in the industrial Midwest to the Southwest, to Appalachia, to the South and, and on? And so I, I recognize and, and celebrate Mr. Woodward's uh, delineation. And I think very specifically to the sense of being a now sitting Congresswoman in a district that I flipped from red to blue, uh, became the first Democrat since before the moon landing to hold a full two-year term in my suburban Southeast Michigan area, largest concentration of automotive supplier jobs in the country, home to some of the household name companies like Chrysler, GM, and, and Ford. And 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 look, I I really believe that People want to see responsible, effective government that is doing and delivering for the residents. Well, I'm curious, as you talk about your district, what's really important in this election cycle to the people that you represent? Look, I think that people understand that we have and felt the things that we have done. They understand, you know, we got a rescue act done that cut child poverty in half, made the largest investment ever in public education, fixed pensions, gave communities resources to tackle COVID-19, got an infrastructure bill done. But oftentimes, as we head towards the polls, and I'm not the first person to say this, people don't vote to say thank you. They, they, They vote to make a demand. And... Uh, I I believe Democratic voters in particular, I've gained a lot more Democratic Democratic voters um, given redistricting and the un-gerrymandering of my my district that was truly cut out neighborhood by neighborhood and and drawn uh, for uh, an an office holder of a different party. I, I think that Democratic voters are still very much talking about that doing and delivering agenda. 
we're right on the line in terms of voting rights and criminal justice reform. We're seeing choice slip away, uh, and that's certainly mobilizing people. We're still seeing and witnessing the ongoing effects and ramifications of COVID-19 and supply chain disruptions. You know, you can measure the economy by job growth and productivity, and you can also measure the economy by your own individual purchasing power, right? This is very much the eye of the beholder. And, you know, you're not getting lunch easily for under $10. And if you're a family of four and taking them all out to eat, just even for what's supposed to be a low cost lunch, that's $50, right? The gas pump is high. The grocery store is high. Daycare costs are through the roof. And that has certainly created a sense of agita. And it's hitting at the very time when trust and trust in government is really at some of its lowest levels. And one of the things that we've seen, certainly with the election of uh, President Biden, is that trying to reclaim trust. You know, they, they call him Uncle Joe. He, he'll call your grandmother if, you know, you tell him it's your grandmother's, you know, birthday and he, he asks for the phone. He He's really comfortable connecting with people one-on-one, which is in an amazing thing. And yet he's reckoning with the frustration of, of our electorate. And you, you certainly, you know, you see that because there's polling. But if you ask people, do you like President Biden? They say they like President Biden. If you talk to people about the things we've, just the things we've done, I'm really enthusiastic about it. And I see the enthusiasm in people. So I, I believe that we are going to have people come out to the polls. I see it in the community meetings, the stakeholder meetings that we we have around the district. You know, there are democratic clubs that 5 years ago when I started running for congress were 30 people big and are now 400 people big and are remaining 400 people big. And much of this Beth is the care and concern for the direction of our country. And I'll just conclude by saying It's frustrating that we're coming out of a weekend where there were, I believe, four shootings, one that was racially motivated, uh, a white supremacist um, tragically uh, murdered in open daylight, 10 people at a grocery store. And we haven't used our legislative channels and abilities to make change. And I made that decision really early on as a Democrat running in a Republican district that I wasn't going to hedge on gun safety. I wasn't going to do it negatively. I just wasn't going to hedge because we do need safety and responsibility. We don't need mayhem and and confusion. And this is something that Mr. Woodward talks about and his plight towards uh, reckoning with individual liberties and, and also where you know, the the government can kind of step in and take on a more group approach, promoting the general welfare, which I believe common sense gun safety legislation would get us. And that does seem consistent with that Yankeedom sensibility that sometimes we sacrifice as individuals for the good of the group. Uh, and gun safety would seem to be one of those areas. And and you see it in the polling. Why is it so difficult as someone who is in the halls of Congress now, understands how the committees work? Why is it so difficult to move forward what seem like relatively small and straightforward pieces of legislation? 
You know, this is something I'm always asking the incredible people who work in my personal office, you know, the, the staff of, uh, of, of Congresswoman Haley Stevens, right? I keep asking my staff, where are the small wins? Where have we gained even just an inch, a millimeter of ground? And let's make sure we're capturing that because we have. The Violence Against Women's Act didn't get the boyfriend loophole, but it got the spouse loophole in there. And so if you have a spouse who's been convicted of domestic violence, you can't just go out and buy a gun. And I keep a portfolio. I watch these fatalities that take place at the hands of uh, a spouse or a domestic partner or a significant other um, who go and sometimes, you know, it's a murder-suicide or, or sometimes it's it's just a murder. And it's, it, it's, it's absolutely jaw-dropping. Um, but I'll, I'll say this, George Packer wrote a very brilliant piece at the top of this year, just as we were turning into the new year, about the fate of American democracy, you know, how close we came really on January 6th and how troubling um, those uh, events and activities were and what, what, what we're up against, but what we can do about it. And something that he said in this piece that was published now months ago that has really stuck with me was that these moments call for creative thinking. So I could walk you through, you know, why we don't have the vote, why we, on gun safety, on just even the very basic background check bill that 90% plus of the public wants, right? And and Chris Murphy, Senator Chris Murphy, who got elected a month after the, the Parkland shooting, um, has sort of talked about that, you know, in a free and fair democracy, you can't just forever ignore the will of over 80, 90 percent of the population in terms of what they want with just common sense gun safety legislation, starting with the background checks. But I also really believe that this moment calls for creative thinking and doing things differently, right? The the old adage, the, the definition of idiocy is just doing the same thing over and over and getting the, the same results. So I'm one lawmaker and I really campaigned on this and and took a risk. I I campaigned on this um, very early on. The the Parkland massacre occurred during the time I was running for office and everything I was espousing, you know, really led up to that moment. And then the March for Our Lives. And there were students, Beth, who I walked with in a March for Our Lives rally in downtown Detroit, who were middle schoolers who fast forward to, you know, three and a half years later, were in high school at Oxford High School in Oakland County, Michigan, experiencing a shooting. All right. So that that's a big irony. But I think in terms of the creative thinking, you know, this is this is something particularly with um, our president who's got his hands full, no, no short of challenges from uh, certainly reckoning with Russia's war on Ukraine to the ongoing effects of COVID and supply chain shortages, particularly one that's really hitting the fore right now and very uh, unfortunate and terrifying with baby formula uh, to gut gun violence. And I would really encourage this president and, and say that you have my full backing and, and support to, to, to take every tool within your uh, authority to stop this madness. 
um, if it's calling in the National Guard, if it's truly calling for a national emergency, certainly we can't shut down the country again, right? We're, we can't we can't go back to where we were in March of 2020. But for the love of God, people out at the Milwaukee Bucks game, I think it was 19 shot, no fatalities, but 19 shot, you know, what's the ongoing impacts of that to what happened in California to um to Buffalo and and on. And this isn't the first time in a weekend where we've seen multiple shootings. So we've we've got to implore creative solutions through executive offices. And I don't want to just put all of the pressure on the president. I think governors and mayors, you certainly see with uh, Mayor Bloomberg, his uh, Every Town for Gun Safety effort and Mayors Against Gun Violence initiative that has been very pronounced for a long time, certainly also being successful. But I'm introducing a bill today on liability. And I also think we got to be able to hold the gun manufacturers accountable as well. Sick and tired of living like this. I want to change gears and talk about the economy a little bit. I am really excited that Congress has been working for some time on semiconductor chips. And being from Michigan, I would just love to hear your perspective on where that legislation is and how it's understood at home. I think this is so tricky and would be so frustrating for me if I were in your shoes, I think, that you are working on building these long-term solutions that are desperately needed. Things like the infrastructure bill, though, I imagine that will greatly benefit Michigan. It's just going to take a while, right? And and any action on semiconductor chips is just going to take a while. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that legislation. And then more generally, how do you talk to people about these long-term plays when you're, when you're governing in two-year cycles? You have hit a sweet spot with me, Beth Silvers. Uh, <laughs> I will tell you, uh, as a lifelong semiconductor uh, enthusiasts. So for the listeners at home, chips are these, um, you know, what's sometimes called a microchip, uh, the devices that go into anything from your phone to your microwave, to your automobile, to uh, medical devices and, and on. And they're absolutely essential for our economy. They're, they're storage, uh, they're communication devices, and they're tiny, and they're complicated to produce. They're produced in fabs that you have to suit up to to go into. You can't even have a hair really exposed uh, because of how sensitive they are to material uh, disruption. And our auto industry in particular is highly reliant on chips for success. So right now you see General Motors selling vehicles that don't have heated seats. Oh, you know, for Michigan, that's almost a deal breaker, right? In our cold, cold winters. And uh, certainly the luxury of the first world. Uh, but the, the reason that they don't have heated seats is because of chip shortage. And the reason why we have production delays is because of a chip shortage. And it's not just what is the original equipment manufacturer known as General Motors, Chrysler, GM. It's the supply chain, you know, the suppliers that produce uh, the platforms for electric vehicles, the panels for the side of your door to the window to the seat that you sit on in a car. And they're all being impacted and they're really being squeezed. And as somebody who stood up for the auto industry coming out of the 2008 uh, presidential campaign cycle, I was working on President Obama's transition and wondering what I could do in his administration, if anything, maybe it was maybe just going back home to Michigan and helping my state that was in a great recession. I put up my hand to, to serve on what became his automotive rescue operation led Steve Ratner and Ron Bloom. 
And that initiative was a managed industrial bankruptcy. It was a rescue uh, G- GM and Chrysler. Uh, it involved the the state of Canada. It involved the United Auto Workers, the UAW, and it saved millions of jobs across this country. And in particular, according to our estimates, 200,000 jobs in, in Michigan. And there's a lot of fear and uncertainty during that auto rescue period. But what we're hearing now, uh, particularly with the supply chain, is that the suppliers are on shakier ground than they were during the rescue. And what that means, Beth, is that a lot of small businesses that are highly capital intensive, right, not just monies, but equipments that are worth millions of dollars that you know, form the metal and the steel that go into cars or the different parts components. And if they shut down uh, or consolidate as a result of this chip shortage, that further compounds our supply chain challenges as a nation. One of the president's first actions in this administration, our 46th president, President Biden's action was an executive order on supply chain, supply chain securitization. This is economic security and national security. And so I'm really excited that we've got legislation that in some ways almost seems like a, you know, um, like a catch up or an emergency reaction to the chip shortage. But it's great legislation. It's the $52 billion uh, for chip manufacturing, workforce training, which will be a huge part of this as as well. It is bipartisan. I led the Problem Solvers Caucus in endorsing this legislation, 29 Democrats, 29 Republicans. And and we're so close to being able to get this done. It's in uh, what is a broader bill, the bipartisan uh, innovation uh, uh, legislation, sometimes known as the Competes Act, bipartisan innovation and competition. I feel like it keeps changing. I can't keep up with the names with this. Of this and, and you do this for a living. I know. I know. It, it does keep changing. So, you know, with many, many different names. And, you know, the, the speaker called me to to participate on the, that what's called the conference committee, the negotiation between the House and the Senate, D's and R's, to, to get this done. And Yes, let's let's pass the the whole bill, which has also got a lot of my my pet projects that directly relate to innovation, scientific research funding, uh, further uh, efforts for supply chain and technical assistance, and on. But let's also start thinking about and going as far as we can for phase two, which is a long term strategy to compete globally. You might recall in 2019 we renegotiated NAFTA. We passed NAFTA 2.0 or the USMCA. Uh, which plussed up by American content was a better deal for American workers. Little known fact, this was passed and into law uh, the day after the first impeachment, which was really quite bizarre because the first impeachment was a very polarized political day. And USMCA was a very bipartisan congratulatory day, both sides of the aisle, um, recognizing each other and their efforts. Thank you, Democrats. Thank you, Republicans. Uh, and, and really created a competitive framework for the U.S. and the North American content to sell internationally and compete internationally. And, and so in terms of what we need to do with chips here is we cannot have foreign markets controlling all of the production of chips. We innovated Intel right? We innovated these companies here in the United States of America. In the 90s, we were producing 40% of chips. Now, what are we down? 12, 13%. And they they change like with the technology. You know, you've got 
new types of chips that come out with new technologies, and we need access to those. So, yes, I am eager. I have certainly been uh, pushing for the success of this industry uh, the whole time I've been in in Congress, and am although I want to say delighted to hear the president and the speaker of the house talking about the need for chips. I know it's coming from a place of real need. And do I think we can get this done? Absolutely. It's what I'm here for. Well, my last question for you is more about the vibe in your district right now. I frequently find myself saying like, what's happening in Michigan? When I think about the plot to kidnap your governor, the response to COVID, just industry issues. I just want to understand how you think Michigan has reached a couple of times what feels like a boiling point to me, especially because of the pandemic, and what you think is needed to help people move forward and kind of out of this place of scarcity and tension. Look, it can't be done in platitudes. You know, I remember right after January 6th, one of the stakeholders it, groups in in southeastern Michigan said, let's have a symposium on all getting along or something along those lines. And I thought, getting along is great, but you can't just say those words. And by the way, you're, you're sort of missing the moment of what actually happened and what we lived through on January 6th. And that's not just through the selfish lens of the elected member of Congress or even the professional staff, uh, architect staff, and janitorial staff that lived through January 6th. It's what our nation lived through. And so I'm, one, a, a big believer in talking about the things that bring people together. I'm lucky because I came out of manufacturing. I'm really passionate about that segment of our economy. And talking about manufacturing innovation and workforce training brings people together. Is that the only thing that we need to do as a country? No, right? I think that there's a lot of pressure on the 435 of us who come into the House, the extra 100 who are in the Senate. And this dysfunction is not all on us. And it's not all just on governors or even state legislatures. There are profiting apparatus that um, that benefit from dysfunction and never writing success stories. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten something amazing done in Congress. Um, uh, certainly, again, self-fulfilled, but first bill signed into law Christmas Eve of 2019, the Building Block System Act. Of course, that's not earth shattering, but it doesn't get a mention, right? Even that USMCA never got a mention, is never talked about really as part of this uh, complicated story of what transpired in the 116th session uh, of, of, of Congress, uh, from an impeachment to a pandemic to, you know, uh, threats from Iran and, and on. And, and, and so, one, we have got to compel uh, a better dialogue. I am a millennial. Uh, I came out of manufacturing technology-based economic development. I got on Twitter uh, in the early early 2010s, and spent a lot of time tweeting about innovation and geeky things, and you know, got into politics and never really had a liability tweet uh, previous to, to running for for office. And I realized, uh, you know, Twitter's going to exist, the social media is going to exist, but the healthiness of the dialogue and how much I choose to participate in it 
may or may not be yielding the best results. You know, we talk about doom scrolling, for for instance, and the job of lawmakers in, in particular is not to legislate off of social media and is not to overly rely on social media. And in fact, you know, the compelling charge of lawmakers is to be of our districts. And I have that very profound privilege. It's, look, it's easy. It's a one-hour commute on an airplane from Washington, D.C., back to uh, Metro Detroit, back to my district. And so I can get home at a ferocious rate to uh, participate in that discourse of our democracy, the dialogue of my district. I do a program called Manufacturing Mondays, sounds really hokey, but what that program is, and I love it, is, and I've done 175 visits to manufacturing uh, facilities and training centers. And these are mom and pop shops. These are not household names. I don't come with a press podium. I come with a notepad and a listening ear to really understand what, what these guys are making, guys and gals, what they're making, what they're working on, what problems they're trying to solve. I mean, this is why I'm so passionate about what's taking place with electric vehicles and autonomous vehicle technology. These you know, you talk about getting chips, it's because we're innovating the world right now from the place that I call home. And and we have the ability to continue to, to do that as long as we have champions who want to bring that to the to the halls of Congress. And I want to win the future. I I believe in an American way. I don't know if every other country's you know, going to be able to adopt our way. And I know that they don't think like us, but we have got to succeed. We've got to succeed on the basics of affordable higher education, on gun safety, on affordable health care, and then succeed on the big things like climate change, right? And not through fear, not through division, but, but through a willingness to win together. And I'll just say, Beth, I have friends on the other side of the aisle who are truly friends. And I'm one of the ones, I'm a friendly Midwesterner. You know, I walk through the halls of Congress and people all say hi to me and I say hi back. And, you know, and sometimes we work together and sometimes it's just a friendship. But if this is something that pantsuit politics was born around as an idea to have common ground, to find common ground, to have tough conversations. And I I believe this, and this is something I've learned from you, is if you're not understanding why someone is voting a certain way, if they're your colleague in the Congress or your neighbor in, in, in truly the community you live in, then you're not on the path to winning. I'm not saying you have to agree with them, but not understanding is a big mistake. And there are those voters who, in this new century still that we are living in, who voted for Barack Obama, who voted for Donald Trump, and then who maybe voted for Joe Biden. Who are those voters? And what is motivating them? And who is listening to them and acting on their concerns and considerations? So I am doing the friendly piece of this. I am part of this deal called the Reagan O'Neill Society. It's just a friendly, fun thing that we kind of made up in our early days of Congress, you know, D's and R's coming together, not with an agenda, literally. I mean, just to socialize. But we are trying to do that and get results for people. And I want everyone listening in conclusion to know that things are happening that are good. We are coming together. We did do the CARES Act um, in the face of COVID-19. We, we, we did step up to 
stand up to Russia and support uh, our a, a Western democracy in, in Ukraine. And we can find ways to be united. And I haven't lost hope on the things that frustrate and sometimes even devastate me. I've mentioned gun violence a lot today, but also the opioid epidemic, right? We've got, we can save people's lives by tackling our, these uh, very fatal drugs, uh, particularly fentanyl that are getting to the hands of young people. And we can, we can make higher education more affordable by expanding Pell Grants so that middle-class families aren't feeling the squeeze or telling their, their child that they can't achieve their dream because it's not affordable or attainable. We can do these things. Haley Stevens from Michigan. My sleeves are rolled up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to tell you, as someone who is represented in Congress by a deeply unserious person, I sleep better knowing that you're there in the details, that you could go deep on any topic I ask you about. And I just, I so appreciate everything that you do for all of us. And thank you for spending time with us here today. Yeah, thank you. Great to be with you. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. 
Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We always end the show talking about what's on our minds outside of politics because we all contain multitudes. And so it is at this special moment that I get to share with you the experience that was attending Garth Brooks Live at Paul Brown Stadium in Cincinnati, Ohio last Saturday with my beloved husband, Chad, and our dear friends, Brian and Jen. Now, I was born in 1981 and raised in rural Kentucky. So Garth Brooks was as much a part of my youthful landscape as air and water. I can still see that black and white checkerboard cover of The Chase, one of my very first CDs. And I feel so sorry for my daughters that they're never going to know the joy of opening a compact disc and removing the cover to find it spill open like a holy book of lyrics and credits. It's been years since I've listened to much of this music for one simple and very 2022 reason. It's not on Spotify where I listen to everything. Garth did an exclusive deal with Amazon in 2016. But it really doesn't matter. All of that music is so deeply implanted in my brain. I could go the rest of my life without hearing it and on my deathbed be able to sing every word of the river. It is as much a part of me as Happy Birthday and Amazing Grace and American Pie. So we made our way down to the stadium, home of the Cincinnati Bengals. We grabbed some truly bad food and spent some time observing the fashion choices of our fellow concert goers been a while since I've been in an atmosphere like this, I had forgotten about the creativity people employ in turning the American flag into boots, jeans, bags, and headwear. There were many t-shirts proclaiming, blame it all on my roots, most in that style of calligraphy that has live, laugh, love as its subtext. And there were, of course, more aggressive shirts featuring a variety of weapons, you know, the come and take it variety. One gentleman had a t-shirt that featured a silhouette of an assault rifle next to block letters that read, mandate this. We debated a bit whether that was a Second Amendment reference or a vaccine reference or some combination, because why not? Chad graciously offered to go ask him about that, but we decided against it. Just as we were settling in, the stadium announced a severe weather alert and told us to take shelter, at which point it became clear to me that Paul Brown Stadium was not built for a sellout crowd to take shelter all at once, We packed into the concession and restroom areas and tried to configure ourselves in a way that would minimize the amount of skin-to-skin contact we'd be having with others in attendance. We ran into an old neighbor whose boyfriend had just been puked on and were able to offer her the one airline sanitizing wipe that I stuck in my jeans pocket at the last minute before we left. Two hours later, in the pouring rain, we got the go-ahead to return to our seats and the crew went to work preparing the stage for the opening band and we all tolerated the opening band just fine. But then at long last, Garth ascended. Hat, guitar, jeans, and a Bengals jersey and I didn't even care. Pander away, Garth. 
It didn't matter because as soon as he started singing, I was 13 years old in my bedroom with the blue carpet and the mauve walls, not thinking at all about why his music suggests that infidelity is a given and its penalty is death. Not wondering why he went to work for her that summer, not thinking too hard about what her hands of leather said about the future. Not caring one bit that allowing the whiskey to drown and the beer to chase my blues away bore no resemblance to my life experiences whatsoever. With the exception of one opening song, his set lived in the span of eight years, 1989 to 1997, just the way you hoped when you bought the tickets. I love live music, and Chad and I go to concerts as often as we can. I have never attended a concert where it seemed that every single person knew every single word of every single song, but that's what this was, a giant Garth-led sing-along with 80,000 people. I'm sure he's played hundreds of shows just like this, but he mirrored my awe at the sound of all these people singing together, the people in the American flag boots and the come and take it garb and the people with the blame it all on my roots calligraphy, all of us together with this voice that had been omnipresent in a time in my life that I both barely remember and will never be far away from. He sounded amazing, better than on the CDs, better than on the radio of my family's minivan, better than at the school dances. And every time I thought he might be winding down, he fired things right back up. More and more and more an embarrassment of country music riches. We gorged ourselves on Garth Brooks music, and it was an absolute delight. I won't spoil the ending for those of you who have tickets for this tour, but I will tell you that every moment was better than the moment that preceded it. We sat through it all soaked from head to toe and left after midnight. I was both shivering and sweating. I was exhausted and exhilarated. I was ready to fall asleep, but I could have gone another 10 songs if anybody else was game. Garth said several times during the concert to the crowd, people, you've been through hell tonight to see the show. And I guess I would just say back to him that we could have missed the pain, but we'd have had to miss the dance. Thank you so much to Elise, to Representative Haley Stevens of Michigan, and to all of you for your grace and patience with me and with our team during a tough week. Thanks to Maggie, who has just been holding it together with me this week. Feel so much better, Sarah, and to all of you who've told us that you also have COVID right now. We'll see you next week. Until then, have the best weekend available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Pettins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Catherine Vollmer. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. I'm seeing we're we're getting a special guest now on with us. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Sarah. 
I'm just popping on to say hi, friend, and I'm sorry I couldn't be here today. Oh, my gosh. You look so sad, Sarah. I'm so sick, you guys. I'm so sick. It is COVID. I mean, thank God for the vaccine, right? Oh, my God. Do you imagine? Yes. I can't imagine. I'm. We're so sick. We're so coffee. Also, my internet is not working really well, which is why I'm joining from my phone. It's a real scene around here. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry I couldn't be on the interview. I just wanted to see your beautiful face and say I miss you, friend. I, my jaw like hit the floor when I Griffin's thirteen. Thirteen, girl. No, thirteen. Like, no, 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 no. Thirteen. Now I've really known you a long time. I know. Beth, don't forget to mention that Haley was also at the very first Pantsy Politics meetup ever. That's right. Ever, 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 ever. That's All right. right. I'm gonna go lay down. Thanks, Sarah. Bye, Rest friends. up. Yeah. I will. Bye.